Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good afternoon. Uh, it's a great pleasure on behalf of the Griffith Asia Institute and the uh, Apex Study Centre at Griffith to welcome you all here uh, this afternoon. Uh, for those of you whom I've not met, my name is Russell Trude. I'm the director of the Institute and uh, I will be your host um, for this afternoon's proceedings. Uh, may I begin by just acknowledging some of our many distinguished visitors. You are all, of course, distinguished, but there are some who claim distinction, uh, particularly. Particular. Um, of course, our guest speaker, uh, Dr Alan Bollard, uh, the Executive Director of the APEC uh, Secretariat in Singapore, um, Mr John McCarthy, who is the, uh, the Chair of the, the Griffith Asia Institute Council and, of course, the National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, uh, Dr Heath McMichael, um, who is the director of the APEC branch. I think I'm right in saying Heath at, at DFAT. It's a great pleasure to have you. Thank you for coming up specifically for this, for this lecture. I'm delighted to see you. Um, there are representatives here from various consulates general uh, around Brisbane, and we're grateful for your attendance. Um, my member of parliament in the House of Representatives is here, Graham Perrett, a member for Morton. Um, Michelle Wade, who is the General Manager of um, Trade and Investment Queensland. Um, thank you, Michelle, for coming along. Very grateful for your attendance. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think that's the, the list pretty well. Um, but uh, I'm, I, noti I noticed quite a few members of the Griffith um, Institute uh, Council here, uh, and I'm grateful for your attendance. Michael Powell, the Pro Vice-Chancellor Business at Griffith, uh, will introduce uh, Dr Ballard uh, at, in a moment. Uh, he will speak for a, around about 30 minutes or so. Uh, we'll have a question and answer period and, and then we'll, we'll wrap up and hopefully be done around about uh, 1.30 or so. So I don't think we need to uh, delay proceedings uh, any longer. So, Michael, um, perhaps you'd do the honours here. Thank you very much, Russell. And let me add my welcome to you here today. We're very pleased to have you here for this uh, APEC uh, seminar, uh, and uh, we're delighted that you could join us um, uh, and join our, our guest speaker today. I'd like to start, as, uh, as we always do at Griffith University, by acknowledging the, trust, the traditional custodians of this land on which we meet today, and pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people. The Griffith, Griffith University APEC Study Centre is one of, the, one of two Australian members of the APEC Study Centre Consortium, which is a global network of research organisations uh, intended to provide high-quality research and analysis on economic and political trends in the Asia-Pacific region. As part of the centre's outreach activities, this event is, a, is one of a series to promote APEC's work, discuss latest developments in the region and trends that are of relevance to business and economy and government in particular. Given all the events of the past few months, and indeed currently with devaluating uh, currencies, etc., these interests certainly provide plenty of possible topics for us to discuss. As I'm sure you know, the APEC uh, uh, Forum was established in 1989 with an aim to facilitate econ economic growth and prosperity in the region. Australia was one of its founding members, and APEC has in many ways helped shape Australia's economic success in the Asia-Pacific region over the past 26 years. 
and it has played a part in highlighting the increasing political and economic significance of the region as critical and indeed central to not just Australia but to global economic security and success. APEC has been at the forefront, ladies and gentlemen, enhancing, in enhancing trade liberalisation in the region and we've seen much progress in this arena. Australia's conclusion of free trade agreements with Japan and Korea and more recently and perhaps more importantly with China presents many opportunities for business across many sectors. How we seize this opportunity is the key question and consequently I'm delighted to have APEC's Chief of Secretariat, Dr Alan Bollard, here with us today to share his expert and timely views on this topic. I might also draw your attention to other related liberalisation activities that are, that are currently being undergoing, we've been undergoing or discussing, like say for instance the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP agreement, which would further liberalise trade in a multilateral way rather than the bilateral free trade agreement uh, method. Dr Bollard is the Executive Director of the APEC Secretariat, based in Singapore. The Secretariat provides coordination, technical and advisory support, as well as information management, communications and public outreach services about APEC. I am particularly pleased to welcome Dr Bollard here today, as he is, like me, a New Zealander. And we need all the support we can get right now, given the All Blacks lost uh, last weekend and the Blitzen Cup is about to be decided. It's hard to be here right now. Prior to joining, I can always mention the cricket when the, when the rugby comes up. Prior to joining APEC, Dr Bollard was the Governor of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, a position he held for a decade or more. In that position, he was responsible for monetary policy and bank regulations, helping steer New Zealand through the global financial crisis, in pretty good shape, I might add. Uh, and from 1998 to 2002, Dr Bollard was Secretary to the New Zealand Treasury, and as the government's principal economic advisor, he managed the Crown's finances and helped guide economic policy in that country. He has served as New Zealand's alternate governor to the International Monetary Fund, the Asia Development Bank and the World Bank. From 1994 to 2008, he was also chairman of the New Zealand Commerce Commission, responsible for regulating competition. And prior to these appointments, Dr Bollard was director of the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research. From this brief outline, you can see that Dr Bollard has had vast experience in matters of economic policy, competition and world global economic affairs. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very pleased to call on Dr. Alan Bollard to provide his or present his address on APEC and trade liberalisation in the Asia Pacific. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Russell. Thank you for the invitation. We'll forget about the rugby for now. That was just one of those things that happened. Uh, and it's my pleasure to talk about APEC and trade liberalisation. First, I would like to congratulate Griffith University on taking that step of setting up an APEC Studies Centre, one of the 50-member consortium around the APEC region. We're very pleased to have you there. I know you'll contribute a lot. And that will continue Australia's contribution, which, after all, is actually where APEC started back in 1989. For those of you who remember 1989, it was a pretty tumultuous time. The Berlin Wall came down, Presidents Gorbachev and Reagan got together. Um, it was the start of uh, another Middle East peace negotiation. It was the end of apartheid in South Africa. It was the year of Tiananmen Square. 
in China, and it was one of the and it was actually the year of the stock market slide in Tokyo, which then led to 20 years of no growth. It was one of those very seminal times, and at that point, some key Australian and also Japanese and a couple of American uh, ministers and officials could see that things were changing and that the pattern of trade and investment could change significantly. And this was the driver for starting APEC, which had its first meeting 26 years ago in Canberra, with the, well, first ministerial meeting, and has gone to huge things from there. And I'd like to talk about some of those things in this broader issue of um, trade growth in the Pacific region. So let me just run through a couple of of areas here. Um, the couple of decades since then, two and a half decades since then, have really been a tumultuous time. Uh, it's over that time that actually most of the world has come out of poverty towards middle class. And if you ever ask what use are economists and APEC and all those sort of things, uh, we actually have been through that period of the greatest growth economic growth that the world has ever seen, and that means something. And this, in the APEC region, was an epicenter of it, and it was driven by trade. So it's been very much a trade-driven growth story, and you know the picture, and it's led to that sort of factory Asia picture of large-scale production in low-wage economies, exporting to higher-income consumers, and sometimes even financing those exports strangely, from those lower-income economies as well. And that all happened in this um, accepted Bretton Woods framework for the organisation of trade, and that was the World Bank, the IMF, and GATT, set up after the war with then some various exchange rates agreements and disagreements through the period, and then GATT gradually morphing into the WTO, uh, and changing in its character, but nevertheless being the primary focus for setting the rules for world trade and done on the basis that trade was generally going to allow specialisation and efficiencies and scale and that was generally going to help economies grow and that was generally going to lead to better living standards for the inhabitants of those people. And that's the only reason that an organisation like APEC would want to see that process continuing and developing. The APEC approach in this um, was really it has changed over the time. So initially it was very much a focus on at the border and on traditional trade barriers, so tariffs and non-tariff barriers, uh, and tariffs um, in a program called the Bogor Goals, which was agreed 20 years ago, which saw developed economy tariffs coming down very quickly and developing slower but also progressing, and now tariffs are about one-third of what they were when APEC was set up in this region, averaging about 6%, and still some way to go, particularly in areas like primary production. Uh, in addition, a big focus on what we would loosely call trade facilitation, so other barriers at borders, non-tariff barriers, but also other ways of facilitating trade going across borders and increasingly services and investment, and I'll come back to that. As that continued over the first decade of APEC, more and more we saw that actually some of the barriers weren't at the border, they were behind the border. So there was 
been an increasing focus on regulatory reform, structural change, harmonization, behind borders as well. How easy it is to set up businesses, how easy it is for them to grow and develop and trade. And that's continuing also, and we're in a couple of weeks' time, we'll have a meeting in the Philippines of structural reform ministers to review all that progress and work out where we go further forward. And then I guess over the last five years, as well as at the border and behind the border, there's been a focus on this across-border thing, because in the meantime, businesses have evolved much more into organisations like supply chains, and we have a number of programmes working on those as well. And I'll come back to that as well. The broad approach that APEC takes, it's 21 economies, there's big, there's small, there's market, there's non-market, and there's open and less open in all of that, but they're all focused on getting better economic integration right across the region. We don't do politics, we don't do security, we don't do cultural issues. Very much focused on the economic potential there is from further economic integration. And it's got some peculiarities, one of which is it's actually voluntary consensus-driven. It doesn't have a formal international um, standing. It hasn't been ratified by parliaments across the world. Um, Gareth Evans memorably said it was four adjectives in search of a noun, and we're still searching. So are we an organisation? I'm not sure if we're actually formally an organisation, but we've done a huge amount in that time and we're continuing to evolve, and the way we tend to do it is by looking for best practice right around the region, looking for ways of harmonising systems around the region, looking for ways of getting interconnectivity and interoperability so it all joins up. I'll give you a few examples. In the meantime, of course, we're not just working in a world with APEC, but there's both the bigger WTO story, where I think many theoretical economists would prefer that the action took place, but where with the much more internationalised WTO, it has been very difficult to see progress continuing, although we're now waiting for final implementation of the trade facilitation agreement that's been reached there, and a number of regional agreements in place. And let's just talk about some of those. It's quite an important year for ASEAN. As many of you will know, this is the year which is the, um, the, the time when the ASEAN economic community starts to come together. I say starts to because... While there's been a sign-up to some very, quite radical um, developments on how they bring it together, it is going to take some time for that all to happen. But there's a lot of focus in ASEAN on that this year. I would note the CJK, China-Japan-Korea agreements. At the minute, it's gone slow because it hasn't probably got the general political agreement that's required to keep moving it. But it does consist of these very big economies, very big trading economies, and therefore it's always potentially important. And another one, mainly in APEC, but on the other side of the Pacific, the Pacific members of Latin American countries, uh, so Mexico, Chile and Peru, together with Colombia, a non-APEC member, have signed only last month ratified the Pacific Alliance, which is also a very forward-looking trade liberalising and um, going beyond trade liberalisation as well. And we're taking quite some note of that in APEC because it's got some other features around it that are pretty interesting for us. Well, how does that all tie in with the way that trade has been really changing around the Pacific Rim? It's hard talking about 
this because we know things are changing, but they haven't all changed, and it's still quite unclear and sometimes confusing as to what are short-term things, what are cyclical changes, and what are structural changes. And broadly speaking, APEC does structural medium-term issues. But we think that the GFC, the global financial crisis, is now seven years since Lehman's went under in 2008. We think that that really has marked quite a sea change, but we're still waiting to see what this new normal actually looks like. And it will be some time before we can be clear about that. What we have seen is some features that we can talk about, and one of those is slowing trade growth. So trade is still growing in the APEC region, but significantly slower than it used to. The broad picture we've had over the last couple of decades was a story that said if you average out all those APEC economies, you had roughly trade growing at 8% a year, and that led to GDP of economies on average growing about 4%, and that led to GDP per capita on average growing about 2%, and that kept the whole machine moving. Now we're seeing trade growth slowing, and that is leading to different views on um, where, the, where the growth drivers really are going to be, and we've seen that nowhere more clearly than China, which is going through a change at the minute, where we're seeing a trade slowdown and a growth slowdown. But some of that trade slowdown is actually exaggerated by the fact that the Chinese industrial production patterns are changing, and more and more, both from market-driven reasons and policy-driven reasons, China is looking to source internally. And some of these supply chains, which have grown up very strongly internationally, are actually now being domestified, it's not a word, but you know what I mean, uh, within China. And so China is trying to push some of that inland. Uh, and that is actually statistically the main reason why APEC international trade growth is actually slowing at the moment. Uh, in addition, uh, we're seeing quite a lot of volatility around some aspects of Chinese economy and, of course, these depressing effects on commodity prices. But partly also, while this is all going on, we're seeing quite changing business models. To be a big trader in the APEC region in the past, it helped if you were a multinational or a SOE, state-owned trading organisation, or possibly um, in the sort of Sino model, a Chinese family, big overseas-owned consortium. But that is changing quite a lot because we're seeing a disintegration of the way that production is taking place, we're seeing a growth of intra-industry trade. We're seeing a growth of, of global value chains. We're seeing product going in and out as it gets built up over time. Our office is in Singapore. We look out over the biggest transshipment port in the world. And if you could actually see what was inside those, those containers, you'd see componentry coming in, going out, coming back again in form of more built-up product. The Apple iPhone was always a sort of classic example of... of these products coming from many countries, many, many factories, but being handled through new forms of business organisation, a supply chain, which either might be handled by a large brand um, producer like Apple, or might be handled by logistics experts like Liam Fung or one of those, or might be organised virtually more and more. And that is leading to quite different ways of having to manage in these organisations and assure quality and get production and so on. 
While that's also going on, we're seeing something that APEC actually hasn't been a world leader on. It's been a world leader on merchandise trade, but not on services trade. The leaders on services trade are to be found in Europe. But more and more, we're seeing that changing as well. This year, Philippines is hosting APEC. Philippines is a big services back office economy, and they're getting us much more focused on growing services trade. And also, small and medium enterprises. Now, politicians and policymakers love SMEs in principle, but SMEs don't always do what they want to do. But what we are seeing now with these global supply chains and with electronic commerce technical possibilities at the border is that for the first time in some cases some small and medium enterprises can really get some of the benefits of internationalization. Philippines this year in hosting APEC has an overarching theme called inclusive economy. Everybody likes the idea of inclusive economy, but actually it's a little bit harder to think about how an organisation like APEC helps spread the benefits of trade and growth more generally across an economy. The way APEC is trying to do it this year is by engaging parts of the economy in the international or at least APEC regional process that haven't been before. So getting SMEs in the international arena, women in the economy, there's a big focus on that and of course in the Philippines, I don't know if you know this, but 70% of businesses are owned by women in the Philippines, so it's a good place to be doing a lot of that. So these models are changing, and APEC's trying to change with them, but we're still experimenting on some of those. And then, of course, the other big change going on is some very basic economic stuff, um, new growth drivers. Last year, China hosted APEC, and they were pushing us to get into some areas of where is new growth going to come from. Now, while all this is happening, we've actually seen these massive price changes over the last few years since the GFC. The prices of the most fundamental things have all changed hugely. I'm talking about capital, labour, energy and commodities. Price of capital has gone from quite high levels down to sometimes near zero and sometimes, for certain purposes, it's actually negative. Who would ever have thought that? Um, I bet I'm not the only ex-central bank governor who just thought we would never see that actually happen. The price of labour has changed. Nowhere again is that clearer than in China where they measure and talk about the changing wage rates and that's of course a big driver for them to want to push production inland but they now don't consider themselves a cheap economy at all. They get pushed along by Vietnam, Myanmar, Bangladesh and some others. And they're looking to go upscale with that. But at the same time, there's other complicated things happening, which is some of the developed economies have actually become more competitive again. And I would say North America is in there, where after the global financial crisis, for good or for bad, actually wage rates have not pushed up. They've, they've generally come down, making some of those economies actually look to ensure some of their production again. And then we've got this strange set of events that's happened around energy where for both demand and supply reasons the price of energy is more than halved from what it was two years ago and some of the forecasts are that that could go further. That's having a huge effect and it's also having this push-on effect through onto commodities where nobody needs to say to an Australian or a New Zealander um, you all know what is happening about commodity prices. It's having a very significant effect on these economies and right around APEC as well. At the same time, we're seeing a lot of disruptive new technologies. 
Now, generally, these can be quite disruptive in a positive way rather than a negative way. And what APEC is trying to do through many... We've got about 40 technical working groups, and many of those are trying to grab at some of these technological developments to smooth merchandise trade, services trade, investment, other capital flows, people flows and data flows across borders. And it's been a very interesting time to be able to do that with electronic commerce um, leading to a whole range of new electronic billing, electronic payment, electronic information, data transfer, authorised economic operators, single custom windows. We were trying to get these new technologies and ensure that we don't end up with an American system, a Chinese system, a Japanese system, but have either integrated systems or common systems, but at the very least interoperable systems, to help these things smooth out these border restrictions. And there's a lot underway. The other area that China really pushed last year was the middle income growth story. And now um, we're starting to see very big middle income populations, particularly around East Asia and Latin America. And they're behaving in quite different ways and they've got very big implications for growth. So much more domestic demand driven growth. Much more focus on the things that middle income people are interested in, some of which is of big interest for Australia because it relates to good quality foods, branded foods, imports, travel, education, health, all of those things. And of course, this is going hand in hand with urbanisation as well at a huge pace. So these people don't have access like they used to to agricultural production. And that's changing their expenditure, particularly on accommodation, housing and so on. And it's also changing the expectations that they have on their own governments. And a number of these governments feel under quite a bit of pressure, purely from an economic point of view, about the expectations that their populations, their middle class populations have, because, um, as any politician in the room would know, um, you have to, middle income people can make their views felt in a quite direct way, and they have expectations about the delivery of services, the delivery of environment, and a number of other features as well. And that is changing, particularly East Asia. So this is a complicated, changing period that we're seeing at the moment right through the region. It is quite hard to tease out the different drivers in all of this. In 10 years' time, we'll be a little clearer about it. But um, it is quite important, I think, to try and get at these. And that's what we're trying to do in many of these APEC working groups and APEC meetings and initiatives. In the meantime, we see these free trade agreements continuing. Um, You'll have seen graphs that look like this. This is number of free trade agreements going on in the APEC economies. The top two are the total signed and enforced by APEC economies. The bottom two are the ones that are done purely within the APEC region. There's a lot of FTAs in all of that. Um, many of them are not particularly effective or really strongly implemented. Some of them businesses won't particularly know about or think they can take advantage of. It's called the noodle bowl or the spaghetti bowl. It's a very untidy bowl. But that's the world that we're in, where there's all these overlapping things going on and um, where that will continue, whatever. Uh, the Policy Support Unit of APEC recently put out a study this year where they have actually tested how much FTAs are helping grow trade or not. And they come up with a very clear correlation. It's a correlation, it's not causation, but they can prove that FTAs 
when they are signed and implemented, are associated with significant increases in trade between those countries that are involved in these agreements. That doesn't, of course, simply mean that you sign an FTA and it causes that trade. It's an interaction, um, and sometimes, indeed, it could go the other way around, that trade could cause an FTA. But they've definitely been part of that growing trade and integrated story. Well, let me finally focus in on what we might call the mega-regionals and talk a little bit about a couple of these, starting with the what we call RCEP, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It is the ASEAN++ agreement. So it's ASEAN plus Australia, New Zealand and India, and it's got Japan, Korea and somebody else in it. China, thank you. Another little economy. And uh, it's being built off ASEAN FTAs. It's um, partway through its negotiations. It's got a timetable to end at the end of this year. These things don't generally work to timetables, so we won't hold our breath on this. But this is basically trying to tidy up the noodle bowl by saying take a standard FTA, ASEAN FTA, and build others off it. From an Australian point of view, it's got some positives and some interesting points, but in terms of pure economic advantage, it's, I don't regard it as that major for Australia uh, because primarily it's encoding some things that are mainly in place and that have already had reactions to. Uh, the one that, of course, is in the news um, and is relatively more important because it's, it's more potentially more radical, potentially more high level, is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It consists of 12 negotiating members. They're all members of APEC, but it's not being done in APEC. Some of it's been done on the sidelines, but some of it's been done quite separately. And it's still at that um, key point where it almost but hasn't quite reached agreement. And, of course, we haven't seen the text either, and that is making it quite difficult to just interpret what stage it's at and what sort of effects it could have. But the modelling on this suggests it's far more important far more important. Um, actually, where are the biggest gains from a static modelling, economic modelling point of view? Well, they accrue to the United States as the biggest economy and to Japan as one with some quite significant distortions which potentially could be removed in TPP. And the irony is that that would help Japan. Um, where is the one that in relative terms would gain the most? You look down the other end of the spectrum to the lowest income member, which is Vietnam, which is going to have the hardest job meeting requirements, but if it can manage to do that, would stand to gain in relative terms the most by being part of this partnership. Uh, the modelling around Australia says you'd get a one-off increase of something, ballpark $10 billion, something like that, half a percent of GDP, definitely worth hearing about and thinking about. But those are only static models, and you wouldn't want to take those conclusions too far. Dynamically, a number of things could happen off this. Well, this noodle bowl is complex, and last year with China hosting APEC, uh, China said, led a discussion around APEC on where are these regional trade agreements going. And the I don't think anybody around the APEC table wants to see an RCEP go off in one direction as a developing economies trade agreement and a TPP as a rich economies agreement go off in a different direction. APEC has done a lot of 
work as an incubator getting out ideas and also as an integrator bringing things together. And China suggested that we should start a study on what might come next and how these things might come together after all of this. And that's reached agreement around the APEC table and interestingly China and United States together are chairing this whole process. We currently have started work on a strategic study on free trade area of Asia and the Pacific. Something that's been talked about and talked about for quite a long time but we haven't really got very concrete on. This is how this would all come together and potentially have all those 21 economies in it. And the study is saying what would it involve? How might you get there? Would there be stepping stones? And if so, would TPP, presumably TPP would be a stepping stone, but would it be the only stepping stone? Would it be a sort of a TPP plus thing? Presumably. Could it be an RCEP plus plus thing? Also possibly. It will be easier to advance that when we see TPP text on the table. And also when we see what other economies might be looking to sign up in that TPP engagement already, Korea has said they're pretty interested and a number of others have. And it's, China has still got the possibility open that they potentially could have some interest in that, but that's some way forward. This free trade area for Asia and the Pacific, when you do these models, actually shows a big increase in benefits for the region. Um, that accrues to economies like Australia's, potentially three times what a TPP could offer, but also right across the region. Why? Because, at least in its model form, it brings China, Japan and the United States together, the very big economies all together, and that's where the big economy benefits potentially come from in all of this. Um, and at the same time as all these have been going on, there's been some more slightly unilateral um, developments uh, where China in particular, well they're not unilateral, uh, but they've been unilaterally led in the sense that China in particular has looked at this Bretton Woods arrangement that's been in place for 50 years and said we want to see some amendments to that. Now some of that is because it's, uh, they've, they've benefited from the WTO but there still have some issues there and in addition of course there's been a lot of angst around shareholding and voting rights on the International Bretton Woods Agreements and that has just been very difficult to, to sort out. So uh, over the last year, particularly around the APEC Beijing November meetings last year, there's been a number of quite key announcements uh, and I'm talking about the AIIP, the Asian International Infrastructure Bank um, and how that might develop. I'm talking about the BRICS Bank, the new development bank, and how that might develop. I'm talking about um, the economic Silk Road and Belt, which is China focus looking inland to the west, as well as maritime east and south, and how trade might develop, and it might go via other trade routes, but also integrate with some of the western China's neighbours, rather than eastern and Pacific. And also the uh, other organisations which are less economic and more security like the Shanghai Cooper Cooperative Organisation, SCO, which is now actually building membership but more Central Asian membership. And of course the stuff that China has been doing to internationalise the RMB with an expectation of getting into special drawing rights of the IMF by the end of the year. 
which is a work clearly still in progress from what we've seen in the last few years. This, um, for, as, as I see it, um, is a, China exerting more of a leadership role in these areas. In the FTAP uh, environment, they've clearly said they want to be a leader together with the United States on it. They want to keep that APEC story really moving, but we know that there are some significant changes going on in the background and all of that. I should stop at that point and hand it to you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you so much, Alan. Yeah, and to that end, I might call upon Michelle Wade from the uh, Trade Investment Queensland, who in fact is a co-sponsor of our activity uh, this afternoon. So, Michelle, would you like to give a vote of thanks? Thank you very much, Dr. Alan Bollard, for presenting to us today. Um, as uh, Russell mentioned, I'm from Trade and Investment Queensland, and, and for us it's a, a pleasure and a privilege to get this sort of umbrella view insight of APEC, because all too often we, we think about these issues from a very Australian-based view. For me to hear about the FTA is beyond just those ones that we're focused on, but those ones emerging in other parts of the, the globe gives us an important perspective in the work that we do in uh, promoting Queensland companies into export and, and foreign investment into Queensland. I'd like to commend Russell and Michael and the team from Griffith Asia Institute and also acknowledge the importance of Griffith's role within the APEC Study Consortium. We are immensely proud of the work that Griffith has done uh, over, over several generations now and the impact that it has particularly on Australian diplomacy and the value of the, the information and the role it continues to play particularly around Asia. Uh, a little bit about my role, I'm the General Manager of International Operations for TIQ, so I manage our 12 offices globally, of which eight are based in the Asia-Pacific. So at the moment, we've got our new trade commissioners in town, uh, one from Indonesia, we're liberating him and heading him, ba uh, heading him back to Indonesia tonight, which is Okasimanjutak, and then Daniel Kim, who's recently joined us as uh, Head of Asia Advisory from KPMG will be heading up to, Cape, uh, to Korea at the end of, of next week. Then, of course, I'll have all of our trade commissioners back in mid-October, so plenty of uh, chances for you to engage directly with them. We're incredibly motivated to get Queensland exporters in both goods and services engaged and utilising the FTAs. We acknowledge that they're underutilised and often misunderstood. In fact, I was with the Japanese ambassador to Australia when he visited Queensland last week, and, and he claims that there's been 30% more beef exports uh, from Australia to Japan in the first five months of the JAPA agreement. So I'm, I'm keen to unpick that result and see how real it is and what benefits that might have had back to Queensland. And in that vein, today we've actually put up on our website a new um, tool for Korea FTA, to help promote uh, opportunities for Queensland horticultural exporters and really unpick uh, beyond uh, the tariff reductions, look at some of the behind the border issues to really focus on where the opportunities are for those horticulture exporters as well. So um, once again, Dr. Alan Bollard, thank you very much for your presentation. Thanks again to Griffith Asia Institute for continuing to add a lot of um, real detail to the dialogue that we have to consider in uh, international trade. Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, 
go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.